All right, if you have a Bible, take it and turn to Genesis 33. Genesis 33, and we are back to the story of Jacob. And Esau is back on the scene. Uh, I'm sure you've been waiting. We kind of left a cliffhanger. What's going to happen here? And so we'll resolve this um, as best we can this morning. But we'll be in the whole of Genesis 33. Uh, it's been 20 years since Jacob and Esau were last together. Uh, after 20 years, some things change and some things remain exactly the same. You know, people, people change, but also people remain exactly the same. I've not been to any high school reunions, but I imagine if I went to my 20 year high school reunion, I would say, wow, that person is totally different. And they are exactly the same as they were in high school. Um, I imagine as my kids grow up that I'm going to say, wow, in 20 years, I'll say they're totally different. Elaine will be, Lord willing, 30 years old. She'll be totally different. And yet she'll be exactly the same in so many different ways. That's the way that things go. And we'll see that with Jacob and Esau a little bit. Uh, After 20 years of being separated, Jacob and Esau, the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. I sometimes forget that these guys were twins. Interesting to think about. They reunite here east of the land of Canaan. And while much has changed, much is exactly the same between these guys. As we're going to look at Genesis 33 this morning um, and this account of Jacob and Esau's reunion, I, I don't have a really a big idea, but I just want to give you three phrases that we'll sort of um, go to and as we walk through the passage. Here's the three phrases. Gracious reconciliation deceptive obedience, and faithful fulfillment. Gracious reconciliation, deceptive obedience, and faithful fulfillment. And we'll just walk through the chapter thinking about those three phrases. This this chapter, as it were, sort of brings to a close a cycle in Jacob's life that began in chapters 26 and 28 with his birth, with his deceiving of of Esau and then his flight for his life at the end of of chapter 28. And things have now sort of come full circle as Jacob comes back to the land of Canaan and has to face his brother. Uh, In fact, we've sort of been anticipating this whole encounter for a while as Jacob is journeying towards Canaan. Um, It's a journey for him that was marked by difficulty and, and just significant events within this season of Jacob's life. A lot has gone on and the narrative has sort of slowed down. We covered many years and now we're covering just months and even days at a time. Uh, he had fled from the land of Padan Aram. You remember he left his father-in-law Laban only to have Laban and his men show up 10 days after he left with their swords drawn and yet God protects Jacob. He blesses him. He delivers him. But it would seem that moments later, um, after this brief encounter with the with the angels of God, Jacob gets word that Esau is coming, and Esau's coming with four hundred men with him. And Jacob panics, and then he prays, and then he wrestles with God uh, to the point that his hip gets lo- dislocated, and then God blesses him. And chapter thirty three takes us back to this issue at hand, where it opens with Jacob lifting his eyes and seeing Esau coming. You remember that Jacob was heading towards his brother, and and that scene at the end that the the sun was rising in the day, and Jacob is limping as he goes out towards Esau. So pick up the story in Genesis 33. 
says in verse 1, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah and her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Remember, he had sent all the cattle ahead as, a, as an offering. What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough. My brother, keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel, the God, God, the God of Israel. That's what that means. So these three phrases are going to frame the passage for us. Gracious reconciliation, deceptive obedience, and faithful fulfillment. So we'll start in verses 1 through 11 with this idea of gracious reconciliation. In case we forgot, verse 1 reminds us that Esau is coming with 400 men. Esau's coming, it says. Jacob, as it were, can sort of see, remember the sun's rising, maybe it's shining off of them as they're coming in the distance. And, and he has been humbled, and he's trusting the Lord, and yet he's also doing things. He's still acting sort of in selfishness. He, he arranges his wives and his children in order of importance to him. The maidservants and their children are first, then Leah and her children are next, and last of all, Rachel and Joseph. This would have given those at the back of the pack the best chance to escape. If Esau does indeed attack, they would have the most time to get away. And if you look at that and you say that's cowardly, that's selfish, that's sort of hard to stomach, I think that's right. It seems very harsh of Jacob to do this. 
It's hard to understand why he did this. Imagine what it's like for his wives and for his children, though. They're saying, why are we at the front? Why did Jacob put us here? Why is Joseph all the way at the back? And you can sort of see that through no fault of his own, Joseph is already becoming the envy of his of his brothers. He's becoming a target for all of their anger. And Jacob, in this instance, is trying to, to protect his favored uh, son. But in many ways, he's paving the way for the hatred that's later going to threaten his life because they hated Jacob because he was so favored by his father. Or they hated uh, Joseph because he's so favored by his father. It's interesting, but whatever we, we make of that, we can at least give Jacob credit for going first. He, he is leading. He's not at the back of the pack. He's at the front. And as we watch him go out ahead of his family, uh, we see the first of, of three parts of it as we think about what is reconciliation, what is this gracious reconciliation, and as we think about how, how we need sometimes to be reconciled to others because we sin against them, what's this going to look like? We can learn from this example. And the first part of gracious reconciliation is the need for humility. The need for humility. As Jacob approaches his brother, what does he do? He bows to the ground. He doesn't bow just once. He bows seven times. And it's not just Jacob, but by the end, every member of his household has bowed before Esau. I hadn't thought of this before, but Carolyn sent me a note from a book that she had read that talked about the physical pain that Jacob would have felt each time that he bowed to the ground. Think about that. His hip the night before was dislocated. And he would have screamed out in pain when it happened. And then each time that he bowed down, imagine the pain that that his hip would have felt as he bowed before his brother. And that pain, just a reminder of his need to surrender to God's ways, to do what God says, and yet also how sometimes in doing that it hurts to follow God. Humility can be a very painful thing. Uh, It's probably not going to hurt your hip, but it will always hurt your pride, right? Last week I was convicted about something I said, and I felt the need to seek some reconciliation. And it was hard, and it was humbling, and it was painful, and I didn't want to do it. Just as it was hard and humbling for Jacob to swear off all of his deception and instead speak of himself as Esau's servant to say that Esau is his Lord. You might look at that and say, is he not affirming his place as the promised one? He's not affirming that he's the seed, that Esau is not his Lord, but that, that Jacob is Lord over Esau. That's, that's what the promise is. But rather, I think here, Jacob is recognizing the wrong that he had done. He is humbly seeking forgiveness. Remember, he had been deceived by Laban in the exact same way. He knew how this felt. He knew the pain that his deception had caused. And having experienced sort of 20 years of life, Jacob says, man, that was mean. What I did to my brother was wrong. And he comes in humility. He's been humbled. He realizes how terribly he had treated his brother. That's true for us, too, when we realize the ways that we have wronged others, whether it's through the experiences of our lives, as we are hurt, and we say, I know that I've hurt others in that way, or maybe as God brings conviction to our hearts, we have to face the pain of swallowing our pride and humbly seeking forgiveness. We have all hurt, we have all sinned against others, and we are all called as followers of God to make things right, to be reconciled. And if you're waiting for, for some moment when humility won't hurt, <laughs> you're going to wait forever because it always hurts. In fact, the longer you wait, 
the harder it gets and the more it hurts. I'm not a physical therapist. Most of our physical therapists actually aren't here today. But I, from what I know, if you have an injury like Jacob, it's going to be best to move it, right? To not move that hip would probably cause it to stiffen up and would cause more pain. And I think that's an apt illustration that if we are convicted, if we see the need to be reconciled to others and we don't exercise that, we don't bow in humility, it's going to become harder and harder and we're going to become more calloused and to the point where that hip just won't move. We won't humble ourselves and we won't seek forgiveness and restitution and reconciliation. When we are convicted, we need to act on it. That's what Jesus' instructions are in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 23 through 26, he says this. Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, wait a week and deal with it. No, it says, leave your gift there before the altar and go. When? Then, right away. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If you want to seek the Lord in prayer or in his word, then we have to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. One of the gifts of daily coming to coming to the Lord in prayer and in his word, or one of the gifts of coming to church, is that we're faced with our sin, that the Spirit comes and says, listen, I don't want your worship until you're right with your brother, until you're right with your sister. And we have to deal with it. Even today, as we take the Lord's Supper, there's a need for reconciliation before we participate in communion. Yes, reconciliation with God, first, of course, but also with others. Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 11, he says we need to examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Often we think that's just about personal sin that I've done against God. And all sin is against God. But specifically, he's talking here about interpersonal relationships. He tells us to discern the body, is what the phrase is, to think about the body of believers, to be sure that we're at peace with others before we take the Lord's Supper. And all reconciliation begins with this need for humility. We need to be humbled, no matter how painful that is. So the need for humility, the second part of, of gracious reconciliation, of godly reconciliation, is the beauty of grace and mercy. The beauty of grace and mercy. Isn't that a beautiful scene in verse 4? Two brothers separated for 20 years meet. Jacob has been fearful of this moment from the moment that he left Padan Aram and headed to Canaan. But Esau's response is that it, it, he's not filled with, with anger or violence. He's not reserved. He's not standoffish. What does he do in verse 4? He ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. What a beautiful picture of grace and mercy. And there is no doubt in my mind that this is the exact phrase that Jesus was thinking about when he wrote about the prodigal son. It's so similar. If you look at verse 4, and then you hear what Jesus says when he's talking about the prodigal son in Luke 15:20, he says that the father saw him, saw the prodigal son, and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's almost an exact parallel. And just as the prodigal son had come and spoke of himself as a servant, so too Jacob said, I am your servant Esau. And yet Esau embraces Jacob as his brother. Esau. Esau of all people is the example of God's mercy and compassion. 
I don't know that that necessarily means that Esau was a follower of the God of his fathers. He doesn't mention the Lord anywhere. It may be a reminder to us that that people who don't follow Jesus can be very wonderfully kind, sometimes even more kind than we are as Christians are. There's people outside the church that are nicer than us. I mean, I've met them. They're nicer than me. But kindness doesn't save us. Still, Esau is an example of God's heart of mercy and grace. You know, you may wonder what would happen. What happens when we come before God? When we confess our sins? When we need to be reconciled to Him? When we painfully bow down to Him? When we admit all the ways that we've sinned against Him? Is He going to be angry? I mean, He has every right to be angry with us, just as Esau had every right to be angry with Jacob. He has every right to come at us, not with 400 men, but with armies of angels. He can destroy us. Our sin deserves death. But like Esau and like the father, he runs to us. He embraces us, not as servants, but as sons and daughters. Jesus has taken our sin. He's suffered in our place through his death. And he's able to own us as brothers, as, as sisters. Hear these words. Romans 5, 6-11 says it perfectly. For while we were still weak... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. By the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been made right with God because there's a brokenness in our relationship with God because of our sin? And if you haven't been made right, then I invite you to humble yourself, to confess your sins against him, no matter how painful that might be and to receive grace and mercy from the Father. He will run to you. He will run right at you, not to destroy you, but to embrace you, to kiss you, to welcome you as his child. How about for those of us that are children of God through faith? Think about the beauty of mercy and grace. The grace of God compels us to be compassionate and to be forgiving towards others, doesn't it? We are not those, as Christians, who should ever say words like, I will never forgive them. They have hurt me way too much. This sin is too great. Could Esau have said that? Certainly. And a billion times more, God could say that to us. But rather, forgiven people forgive. That's what they do. That's what we do. And so, may the love of God in Christ compel us by the power of the Spirit to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Whether after 20 minutes or 20 years, we should be those who are humbly seeking reconciliation and joyfully embracing those who have sinned against us. That's what we do. So as we think about this gracious reconciliation, the need for humility, the beauty of grace and mercy, and finally the place of restitution. The place of restitution. I, I want to be brief here. Well, we see that Jacob gives Esau this gift. You remember all these cattle and sheep and everything that he sends ahead. And Esau says he doesn't need it. But Jacob says, I need you to take it. 
Because in some way, he's trying to make things right with his brother. There's two phrases that are really interesting here as he's talking. Uh, The first is when he says, he says to Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Where should that make us go back to? Makes us go right back to Jacob wrestling. Because what does he call that place? The place is called Peniel, which means what? The face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I listened to one guy this week, and he said this is the second greatest moment in Jacob's life. The first is when he saw God face to face and lived. And the second is when he sees Esau face to face and lives. And it's like seeing God. He comes to God and expects to be destroyed, but he is blessed. He comes to Esau and expects to be killed, but he is forgiven. He feared Esau, and yet he is forgiven. He'd stolen the the blessing from him. That's the next phrase that's interesting to me. He says, um, verse 11, Please accept my blessing. That is brought to you. What was the issue between these guys? Jacob stole the blessing. And now he says, I want you to take this blessing. I want to bless you. He can't give the blessing that he stolen, that he had stolen back. But he wants to bless his brother. And so he gives all these gifts as some form of, of restitution. Restitution is not earning the forgiveness. I don't think that's what's going on here. But it's the desire to make things right. It's the desire to do what he can to restore the relationship, to right the wrongs, that he has committed. The greatest New Testament example of that is who? Zacchaeus. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus comes to, Jesus comes to, to Zacchaeus, comes to his house, and salvation comes to that house, and it's wonderful. And what does Zacchaeus do? He's, he's forgiven by Jesus, but he says, I am going to make restitution. I am going to abundantly bless all of those people that I have wronged because I wronged them so badly. It may be that restitution is the fruit of genuine repentance. It's evidence that our hearts have truly been changed and that we want to to see the pain that we have caused cease. It's not earning salvation. It's not earning forgiveness. But rather, it's it's showing that that I recognize how hard I have, how bad I have hurt you, and I want to make it right in any way that I can. Gracious reconciliation involves the need for humility, the beauty of mercy and grace, and, and the possibility, the, the, the place, the, the, the need at times of restitution. Moving on from gracious reconciliation, notice Jacob's deceptive obedience. So 1 through 11 is this gracious reconciliation. 12 through 17 is Jacob's deceptive obedience, if there is such a thing, right? <laughs> You see this beautiful reunion, this beautiful picture of reconciliation. And then there's this sort of surprise that happens, though it's not completely surprising. Um, Having accepted Jacob's gift, Esau suggests that they head south. Let's go to Seir, which is where he lived. And he suggests let's journey together. And Jacob makes the legitimate point in verse 13. He says, traveling with flocks. And herds and children is much more difficult than traveling with a, a company of, of grown men. As those of you who have traveled with children know, the bathroom breaks alone would put them behind Esau's crew by days, you know. Um, so Jacob says that we should stay back. And also driving the herds is going to, it's going to literally kill them some 100 miles and driving them hard. It's not going to work. So he tells Esau, go ahead. 
you go to this place and, and I'll follow you at the pace of the flocks and the pace of the children and we'll meet in Seir. Esau understands. He says, how about I give you some help? And Jacob says, no, that's, that's not necessary. And so Esau heads south to Seir and before the dust settles, where does Jacob go? He goes east. He heads east to Succoth. He's lied to Esau. He, we know that he has no intention of going to Seir. Because he goes to Succoth, then what does he do? He builds a house. Like, this isn't just a temporary stop. He builds a house and he builds booths for his animals. Why? Why does Jacob not go with Esau? And why does he lie about it? I think the answer to the second question is very easy. Old habits die hard. (laughs) This is Jacob. Jacob has been a deceiver, a heel grabber from the womb. This is still his default mode of operation. He... He may fear that that by, I think part of it may be that he fears that Esau has shown so much grace and so much kindness that if he says, no, I'm not going with you, that it's going to incite Esau to more anger maybe. And so so he lies to, to keep that from happening. But I think also it's right that he not go to Seir. That's not where he's supposed to go. Where is he supposed to go? Supposed to go to Canaan, because that's where God told him to go, and Seir is not there. It may be that when this whole exchange happens, remember, these guys are twins. They sort of have that sixth twin sense, right? They know what's going on. It could be that, that Esau knows that Jacob has no intention of following him to Seir. And this is sort of just the amicable way that they're going to part ways and not have another argument that weighs on their consciences. Esau may have posed some sort of a, a test to Jacob. Is he going to go with his brother? Or is he going to go where God told him to go? Is he going to choose to follow and fear God? Or is he going to follow and fear his brother? Is he going to risk offending his brother? What's he going to do? I think what happens here is Jacob obeys but he still twists things a little bit to make sure that things go the way that they're supposed to. <coughs> Three brief thoughts on this. One, there are default sins that die hard. There are default sins that die hard. Or as, as Paul calls it, the sin that so easily besets us. We all know this. There are things in each of our hearts They're just pathways that the river of our heart wants to flow down. We just always want to go that way. And I think Jacob's knee-jerk reaction has always been to lie. I'm just going to lie. I just deceive. That's what I do. That may be your default sin. It could be something totally different. But to recognize our own hearts and to realize these things die hard. And to, to see it in our hearts, but to see it in others too. I don't know that I want to jump all over Jacob at the same time. It's wrong. He should not have done this. But you know, you live a certain way and you start trying to change your life. We meet people and they come to Christ and they want to follow him. And the moment they do something from their old life, we want to pounce on them and say, why would you do that? You're a follower of Christ now. If someone's for 60 years lived a certain way and this is how they've always lived and they turn to Christ. Yes, the power of the Spirit can change them completely. And sometimes it does in certain areas. And sometimes they fall down those paths over and over again. Default sins die hard. Recognize it in our own hearts. Be gracious to others. Second, deception is not necessary for those walking in God's ways. Deception is not necessary for those walking in God's ways. I can show some grace to Jacob, but I can also say it's wrong. He should not have lied. 
I think he's scared, and he doesn't need to be scared of Esau. He needs to fear the Lord and obey the Lord. But he lies, and I don't think he needs to. How about you? Do you feel like you need to lie? This is the way God's telling me to go, and I need to sort of just twist the truth a little bit to help God along and make sure that nothing bad happens and that this happens the way it's supposed to. Don't ever think that way. Deception is not necessary, ever. And third, don't be distracted from God's commands, no matter how wonderful things appear. Don't be distracted from God's commands, no matter how wonderful things appear. Wouldn't this be lovely? Jacob and Esau go to Seir and they live together. Brothers. They have all their flocks together. It looks like a great plan. But that's not what Jacob's supposed to do. He's supposed to go to Canaan. And so he forsakes his brother and does what God told him to do. He does what Jesus tells us to do. If we're going to follow God, if we're going to follow Christ, family cannot be the ultimate thing for us, but rather obedience to God. We don't listen. We don't love mother and father and sister and brother and children more than Christ. We love Christ more. We do what he says. So the deceptive obedience. Think finally about faithful fulfillment. I love this section in verses 18 through 20. And this is where it all comes to a head. Faithful fulfillment. At this culmination of Jacob's life, we find that God has been completely true to his word. You remember that God made a promise to Jacob? Right after he leaves Canaan, there's a a vision of the stairway to heaven. And in chapter 28, verse 13, God is standing at the top of the ladder. And this is what God says to Jacob. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And here in chapter 33, 20 years later, God has safely brought Jacob back to Canaan. He'd been in Padanaram, he'd gone through all of that, and he comes back to this place, and God has been faithful. But not, not just to the land of Canaan. Where does he land? From Succoth, he goes to Shechem. You want to know the last time that Shechem was mentioned in Genesis? Genesis 12:6, long before Jacob. After being called by God to leave his land in Haran, Abraham travels south. And do you know where he enters into the promised land for the first time? The first time Jacob sets foot, or the first time Abraham sets foot in the promised land is where? Shechem. He enters into Shechem, into the promised land. This is what it says in Genesis 12, 6 through 7. Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abram, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. In fact, as Jacob in verse 20 builds this altar, the word there probably means that he rebuilt the altar of his father Abraham. So Jacob has not only been brought back to the land of Canaan, but he's been brought back to this place where his grandfather Abraham had the promise reiterated and he's reminded of this even greater promise, not just that God was faithful to bring him back, 
to the promised land, but that, that he would fulfill this even greater blessing of land and of a promised seed. God is showing his faithfulness to his word. He's brought Jacob back and he will fulfill his even greater purpose and promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and their descendants. So in faith, this is how Jacob responds. He does two things. He buys land and he builds an altar. He sees God's faithfulness and he buys land and then he builds an altar. Who was the last person to buy land in the land of Canaan? Abraham. Do you remember what Abraham bought? About the cave of Machpelah, a place to bury his wife Sarah. And he is buried there, and Sarah's there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there, and soon Jacob and Leah would be there as well. It was Abraham who did it, and he staked his claim. He said, this is the land God promised to give me. I will buy land here because this is where God will bring me. And here in Shechem, Jacob does the exact same thing. In Succoth, what did Jacob do? He built booths, temporary structures. Why? Because it's east of the Jordan. It's away from the land of promise. But in Canaan, he buys land. Because he knows that this is his home. This is the land that God is going to give him. It just reminded me as I was thinking about it. That am I storing up treasures here on earth in a temporary place? Or am I investing in the land of promise? Am I investing in this earth where everything is temporary? Except for what is done for Christ? Or am I investing and putting my life into things that will last for all eternity? He buys land and then he builds an altar. He builds an altar to El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel, the strong God. And not simply the God of his fathers, but his God, the God he had wrestled with and the God who had blessed him. It's the God of Israel, his new name. You know, the last altar that was built in Genesis, Genesis 26, 25, it was an altar and it was not built by Jacob. It was built by Isaac. Abraham built altars all over the place. Isaac, we know, built this one, but Jacob had never built an altar. He always set up pillars, it says. Set up a pillar to God. But here, this is the first altar that Jacob builds in the land. Jacob finally calls on God as his God, as the God that he will sacrifice to, as he will worship. He fulfills his vow. God had fulfilled and been faithful to his word, and now Jacob fulfills his vow. Genesis 28, 20 through 21. Jacob says, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And he, he comes through, he says, God was faithful, I will be faithful. God fulfilled his word, I will fulfill my word. Now listen to these words as an Israelite, east of Jordan, getting ready to enter in to the promised land towards Jericho. To take over the land. Because that's where they're hearing this for the first time. They dwelt in booths and in tents for 40 years from the moment they'd left Egypt. And now they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. The land where their father Jacob owned property. The land where Abraham owned property. God's promises were slowly coming true. And he brought them safely all the way to the doorstep of the land. And now they are confident as they look at Jacob's life. God will protect us from all of our enemies as we walk with him. We will dwell in this land. This is our land. It's the land that we have staked a claim in. It's our permanent place as long as we are worshiping the God of Israel. 
And then hear these words as a Christian who has not only seen God's faithfulness in the Old Testament to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and on through, but as those who have seen Jesus, the Messiah, that God has been faithful to his word to send Christ to come and to inaugurate his kingdom here on earth. We worship God as the one who fulfills his word, who is faithful. What he said he will do. We can have confidence that he will do everything that he has said he will do. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will provide a way to escape all temptation. He will clothe and feed us like the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He will come and take us to himself that where he is, there we may be also. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will reign on the earth as the Lord and the King of the universe. That will all happen. He is a God who fulfills his word. And until that day, we hold to the clearest evidence of his love and his faithfulness. We hold to the cross. So this morning, we look at the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, and it speaks out. It says, you are reconciled. You don't need to make any restitution because I've paid for the price fully. Only come, bow in humility, no matter how painful it might be, and receive the grace of the cross. Let the table this morning remind us that God graciously runs to us and embraces us. Let it remind us that we have submitted to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we will follow him wherever he leads May the truth of the table keep us from straying to places that, that he's not called us to go to or following people that we're not supposed to follow outside of the place of promise. Let the table remind us that God is true to his word. He spoke in times past. What did he say? He said, I will send a seed that will crush the head of Satan and will kill death. He said, if we confess him as Messiah, as king, then all our sins will be cast into the depths of the sea and we will be made children of God. If we are those who have bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you are someone who is relying on Christ alone for salvation, I want to invite you to remember his faithfulness this morning. I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup with us. I also ask that you've been baptized. Now, that's not because we think baptism makes you saved, but because it's an outward sign of what God has done in your heart. And before we take the cup, I'd also ask, thinking about this idea of reconciliation, do you need to be reconciled with someone else before you eat this meal? If you are reconciled with God, then the table is open. But Paul tells us to examine ourselves. Maybe it's something you can deal with right now. I've done it before. I've turned to my wife in the midst, before the elements are passed, and said, I am so sorry. I sinned against you earlier this week or this morning. You could deal with it now. Or to a child, to say, this is wrong. I need to deal with this before I take the Lord's Supper. Maybe it's a phone call in the hallway you want to make. You want to do it before your hip stiffens up, right? Before it gets too hard. We take the, this seriously because it's, it's, it's communion with God, but it's communion with with one another. It may be something you need to deal with that the Lord is bringing to mind. I need to be reconciled to this person. I'm withholding forgiveness from them. And you need to let the bread and the cup pass before you take it. I trust that God's Spirit is going to lead us into truth and lead us to do what we need to do.
But I pray that this morning we'd be able to celebrate well the reconciliation that we have in Christ and the fellowship that we have with one another around this table.